an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. The last time I was in this room was 2004. I spoke on the, the George Bush book, and I was Protestant at that point. So uh, quite a bit has changed since, since then. I came into the church in April 2005, right around the time of the death of, of John Paul II. And uh, Scott Hahn, who's here tonight, was there. It's good to see Scott. Um, thank him as well, Michael Hernan. And, uh, and everybody for being, this is, I, I love this college, it's a great college. Uh, in fact, you guys uh, gave me an honorary degree a few years ago, probably your first mistake. Uh, <laughs> but so I, I'm considered a, an, an alumnus of, of this college. It's also profound to be here on the, the day of St. Francis. And in fact, the, uh, one of my books is, is on Judge Bill Clark, and Bill Clark was Ronald Reagan's closest advisor. And Judge Bill Clark uh, is, now in the process, very late in life at the age of 80, of becoming a Franciscan friar. Um, after, this would be 60 years after he left an Augustinian novitiate in New York in the 1950s to eventually go on a very, very different route, ended up being Ronald Reagan's national security advisor. Clark was the guy who helped Ronald Reagan win the Cold War more than any other advisor. And Bill Clark was closer to Reagan spiritually than anybody else and this will interest you, when Clark and Reagan were both ranchers, California ranchers, and they would ride around on horses together at the Reagan Ranch near the Santa Barbara, near Santa Barbara, the Santa Inez Mountains, and they would uh, pray the, 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 the prayer of St. Francis together. Uh, Clark, right outside the chapel that he's built in Paso Robles, there's a mosaic that has the prayer of St. Francis. And I was, I was at the Reagan Ranch just last month in August, actually, and there is an icon of St. Francis in, in Ronald Reagan's house at the, at the Reagan Ranch. I'm not exactly sure how it got there, but it's, but it's there. So uh, St. Francis, pray for us. Today, I'm going to talk about John Paul II, Ronald Reagan. Uh, they were allies in, joint in a joint commitment to confront two evils, atheistic communism and the death culture. And both of these battles took not just immense creativity and innovation and being proactive, but, but immense courage as well. I mean, these two really came under fire for what they did. They took on the secular culture. They took on the cultural elite. And I, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from them working together in the 1980s, what they did during that period, and really what we're going through today. So I have um, a PowerPoint presentation, which I hardly ever do. I don't know if this will actually work. This is my first shot at doing a PowerPoint presentation. But I was at the Reagan Library in, in August. I had gotten about 2,000 pages of material declassified, letters between Ronald Reagan and John Paul II, filed a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act requests. And these are materials from the 1980s that um, didn't get declassified for 30 years. So I have some of those documents tonight. Nothing dramatic, but, but I, I think they're at least interesting and, and worth looking at. And after that, uh, I'll go through some of those. Those are on the Cold War period. I'll also show you some documents from the Reagan presidency that relate to the life issue, uh, the abortion issue, and then finish up with a, with a couple video clips. Ronald Reagan gave a remarkable speech in July 1987 to pro-life leaders that I, I think will speak to you today, 20, 25 years later. All right, so let's start with uh, May 13th, 1981, the feast day of Our Lady of Fatima. 
May 13, 1981. Pope John Paul II was shot on that day by a, by a would-be assassin and very nearly bled to death. People had no idea at the time just how perilous this was, just how close he came to dying. And that happened to take place six weeks after, after Ronald Reagan, on March 30th, 1981, was also shot by a would-be assassin. And people had no idea how perilously close Reagan came to dying as well. Uh, Reagan, like the Holy Father, came very nearly bled to death. Uh, the two of them, had these two men perished, I'm certain that the 20th century wouldn't have ended as it did. I don't think the Cold War would have ended when it did. Communism wouldn't have ended when it did. The Soviet Union wouldn't have collapsed when it did. Certainly not as peacefully, not as joyfully as it did. Ronald Reagan was um, very troubled by the shooting of the Pope. The Pope was very troubled by the shooting of Reagan. And Reagan, just four days after this, after John Paul was shot May 13th, Reagan gave the commencement speech at Notre Dame. So long before Barack Obama gave a commencement speech, at Notre Dame. He's not giving one here, I, I, I understand, right? That's, that's not happening. But uh, long before that, Ronald Reagan, May 17, 1981, he gave, gave the commencement at Notre Dame. In that talk, he started off by wishing a speedy recovery to John Paul II. And then he said this, the years ahead are great ones for this country, for the cause of freedom and for the spread of civilization. The West won't contain communism, it will transcend communism. It will dismiss communism as some sad, bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages are even now being written. Uh, that speech, by the way, was written by a Catholic speechwriter, Tony Dolan, who at that point was a 20-something Yale graduate and Reagan's uh, chief, chief speechwriter. Although no one else said it at the time, certainly as audaciously nor expected it, Reagan was exactly right. Those last pages were at that point being written. And, and this genuinely was, there's a lot of people here, a lot of students who were born after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I'm gonna make the older people in the audience feel really old now. But I mean, you, you didn't live through this. Communism was, was truly horrific and deadly. Just think about this. 100 million people died under communist governments from 1917 to the end of the 20th century. And to give you an idea of what that's like, 100 million people World War I, about eight and a half to 10 million people died. World War II, about 40 to 50 million. We in America lost about 300,000 men in World War II. And everybody has an uncle or knew somebody who died in World War II. Now take those combined death tolls of World War I and World War II, the two bloodiest conflicts in world history. Combine them and then double them, and only then are you getting close to the number of people that the communists killed. And 100 million, which is the figure used by the Black Book of Communism, the Harvard University Press book that was published at the end of the 20th century, that's a conservative estimate. They, they say, they estimate, the Black Book estimates only about 25 million that died under Stalin. The latest research on Stalin, the Yale University Press by Alexander Yakovlev, says that Stalin alone probably killed 60 to 70 million. And the latest numbers on Mao Zedong of China suggests that he killed over 70 million. So it's probably more like 140 million people altogether. Just this horrific, horrific ideology. But Reagan is predicting in 1981 that communism, the last pages are being written at that point in time. That prediction was not just a prediction, but it also foreshadowed policy and exactly what Reagan intended to do, which was try to dismiss communism to what he called the ash heap of history. And for that, 
he would seek the help of John Paul II. Also in the Notre Dame speech, Reagan said this. He's rallying all these students to the cause. We need, we need to rally to a common cause that's bigger than ourselves to attain the unattainable. Americans have met this challenge, Reagan said. Um, Americans need to meet this challenge. They need to affirm that an American nation will come of age, that will, it will affirm its leadership of free men and women serving selflessly a vision of man with God. And he said this, it is time for the world to know that our intellectual and spiritual values are rooted in the source of all strength, a belief in a supreme being and a law higher than our own." Unquote. Reagan would see John Paul II as a spiritual partner in that. Now, June 1981, one month after this, after the, the Notre Dame speech, the shooting of, uh, of the Pope, Ronald Reagan has a meeting with Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa met with Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, and uh, Mother Teresa had another nun who was with her. They were having dinner. And she said, drop this. He had no idea this was coming. He said, Mr. President, we stayed up all night praying for you, me and the sisters, the night that we heard that you got shot. And Nancy Reagan starts getting choked up. And, and she says, Mother Teresa said, you have been shown the grace of the cross. There's a reason for this. There's a reason that you've been spared. And Nancy Reagan just broke into tears when she heard that. It was the same thing, incidentally, that Terrence Cardinal Cook of New York had told Ronald Reagan in the White House on Good Friday, 1981, April 1981. Also in June of 1981, a press conference is called, and one of the people, one of the reporters said to the president, you had made this prediction about communism. Well, there's a lot going on in Poland right now. Do you think what's happening in Poland could be an indicator of what you, what you said in your Notre Dame speech. Reagan said this, yes, I just think it's impossible, and history reveals this, for any form of government to completely deny freedom to people and have that go on interminably. Communism is an aberration. It's not a moral way for, of living for human beings. Now think about this, and that's just saying it's a bad way politically, a bad way ideologically. Communism is not a moral way of living for human beings. John Paul II agreed with this completely could have written this. And I think we are seeing right now in Poland the first, the beginning cracks, the beginning of the end. Fast forward, December 13, 1981. Anyone know what happened in Poland? December 13, 1981. Martial law is declared in Poland. Uh, John Paul II's home country. The, the Soviets crack down, the Polish government cracks down. Reagan sees in martial law here a potential opportunity to work with John Paul II to try to begin splitting Poland from the communist bloc and to begin splitting the communist bloc from top to bottom. All right, but let me back up a little bit. June 1979. All right, you follow me in the chronology? All right. June 1979. Uh, John Paul II makes his first trip to Poland as pope at that point, right? John Paul II became pope when? 78, very good, October, October 19, so there's gonna be a test on this when we're done. You guys just re you remember all these days. October 1978, so uh, 455 years, this is, this is, the, f this is the first non-Italian pope in 455 years, first Slavic pope ever, all right? And, and the Soviets were terrified of this, right? Uh, John Paul II gives that famous speech at Jasnogora. He's there from June 2nd to June 11th, 1979. Uh, the, the, the KGB, the, the Polish army, the, the Soviet-backed Polish army, Soviet security, 
they're all crowding around and John Paul II says to, says to the Poles who look nervous and who are afraid, he tells them, be not afraid. Right? Those words of the angel Gabriel to Mary at the Annunciation. Right? Be, not, be not afraid, Mary, for God has found favor with you. It's as, it's as if the Pope is saying, be not afraid, Poland, right? for God has found favor with you. Reagan at the time was watching this on television. He saw the footage on TV. At that time, he hadn't run for president yet. He would run for president in 1980. Uh, Reagan watched this with a man named Richard V. Allen, Catholic, who became Reagan's national security advisor. And Allen said, I'll never forget watching Reagan's face. He saw the Pope in front of these huge crowds of people, millions of people, and tears were running down Reagan's faith and he, face, and he was saying, that's it, that's it, that's it. The Pope is the key, the Pope is the key, the Pope is the key. Uh, the, the Pope is the key to splitting Poland apart, to splitting communism apart. And, and Reagan said to Allen, and he said to Clark and his other close advisors, when I become president, we're going to do something about this. We're going to tap into this. Reagan had a, had a syndicated radio broadcast at the time. He would do these radio broadcasts five days a week. And he wrote one on the at the time on the Pope's trip. And he said this, these young people of Poland who greeted the Pope had been born and raised and spent their entire lives under communist atheism. Once in the days of Stalin, Stalin is said to have dismissed the Vatican by contemptuously asking, how many, how many divisions does the Pope have, right? Well, said Reagan, in recent weeks, that question has been answered by Pope John Paul II. It has been a long time since we've seen a leader of such courage and such uncompromising dedication to simple morality, to the belief that right does not make right. Right does not make might. Unbelievable numbers, Reagan went on, have showed up. Will the Kremlin ever be the same again? Will any of us, for that matter, be the same again? This one man, the son of simple farm folk, has made us aware that the world is crying out for a spiritual revival and for spiritual leadership. The New York Times, by the way, editorialized on the Pope's visit to Poland that same week, and they wrote this. As much as the visit of Pope John Paul II to Poland must reinvigorate and re-inspire the Roman Catholic Church in Poland, it doesn't threaten the political order of the nation or of Eastern Europe. <laughs> now, so saith the times, right? But uh, Reagan understood completely differently. Oh, you, you bet it does. You bet it does. So fast forward uh, back to December 13, 1981. Martial law is declared in Poland. Uh, Ronald Reagan is furious about that. Uh, all international flights are banned. There was a curfew set. You couldn't travel outside the country. There were police on every street corner. You couldn't leave your house without having your ID checked. Solidarity members were arrested, rounded up, Lech Walesa. Uh, people in John Paul II's hometown of Krakow were, were arrested. Some people were shot. Some people were killed. Um, it, 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 international chaos. In response to this, Ronald Reagan immediately called Pope John Paul II to discuss the situation. And he said, this is the telephone call, transcript from the telephone call, our country was inspired when you visited Poland. That would have been in 1979, Reagan wasn't even president yet. And to see their commitment to religion and belief in God. It was an inspiration. All of us were very thrilled. And he told the Pope that he looked forward to the time when the two of them could sit down and meet together. And when could they make that happen? How soon could they make that happen? Well, it would happen in June 1982. June 7, 1982, the first time these two, men, these two men met. 
It was at the Vatican. They met alone in a library at the Vatican for about 50 minutes. Bill Clark, the national security advisor who was there, later said this, it was always assumed that the president would meet with the Holy Father as soon as feasible. Because of their mutual interest, the two men would come together and form some fort of collaboration. Um, Pio Cardinal Laghi, right, Cardinal Laghi, who was Clark's counterpart, who was also there, said this. Reagan told the Pope, look how the evil forces were put in our way and how providence intervened. Clark said that by evil forces, Reagan here was referring in particular to the fact that both survived assassination attempts. And they confided in one another in that meeting that they believed that God had spared their lives for a special purpose. And that purpose would be to take down this evil empire, to take down Soviet communism, beginning in Poland. Clark, this Protestant and this Catholic, they shared a unity in their spiritual views and in their vision of the Soviet empire. Namely, that right or correctness would ultimately prevail in the divine plan. Um, Clark and Reagan called it the DP, the divine plan. That was code language that they had. And I'll talk to Clark still to this day, and I'll, and I'll say, you know, Bill, you were offered the Supreme Court position that went to Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, I mean, you, you would have been there, you would have voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. It would have been 5-4, KCV Planned Parenthood, 1992. If you, you would have taken that job. Oh, not just that, Paul, it would have been 6-3. I would have brought Anthony Kennedy along with me. <laughs> All right, 6-3. Uh, you know, but you, but you passed that up to instead go to the National Security Council. Part of the DP, Paul, part of the DP. That's how he says it. So instead he went to the National Security Council and they fought the Cold War. They won the Cold War. As Clark said, um, the death culture, the battle against abortion, that's left to you to all of you to fight. You can only fight so many battles in one lifetime. Reagan and the Pope really hit it off. They, they had such a kinship. Uh, the Pope liked Reagan for a number of reasons. One, he rightly perceived in him someone who was very pro-Catholic. Uh, Reagan's father had been Catholic, and Reagan's closest foreign policy advisors were Catholic. Uh, before Clark at the NSC, there was Richard V. Allen. Allen was Catholic. Al Haig, Secretary of State, was Catholic. Al Haig's brother was a priest. Uh, Speechwriters, Peggy Noonan, Anthony Dolan, Peter Robinson, who wrote the Tear Down This Wall speech. Peter Robinson converted to Catholicism while he was writing speeches for Reagan. Um, Vernon Walters, the ambassador. William Casey, the CIA director. All of these, and, and the Pope noticed that. Uh, also, the Pope was pretty happy when Reagan's administration, President Reagan, recognized the Vatican in January 1984. That was something the previous presidents, going back to Harry Truman, refused to do. Reagan was willing to do that. They were a perfect match. Each man, spiritually speaking, they placed great stock in forgiveness, something that Reagan learned from his Protestant mother. And while you know that John Paul II forgave Ali Asha, his would-be assassin in prison, I bet you didn't know that Ronald Reagan secretly um, also reached out to John Hinckley, his would-be assassin, through Hinckley's doctor, the mental doctor, because Hinckley at that point was, was institutionalized, and Reagan asked if an arrangement could be made privately where Reagan could meet with Hinckley and forgive him as well. And that meeting never happened. And no one ever talked about it until the doctor talked about it after Reagan's death in, uh, in June 2004. 
Both of these men uh, were fierce anti-communists with a remarkable faith-based optimism. Uh, Nancy Reagan, Mrs. Reagan, who, who I interviewed, uh, Mrs. Reagan uh, through, talked to her recently through, through her secretary, Joanne Drake, and Joanne talks about sitting down and looking at pictures of Ronald Reagan with various heads of state not that long ago, and they were looking, you know, here's Reagan and Gorbachev, here's Reagan and so-and-so, and they got to the picture of Reagan and John Paul II. In fact, I think it was this one right here. Um, Nancy Reagan loves this photo. She, she says, look, you know, Ronnie is saying something, and the Pope's, he's listening. He's listening very closely. But, the, but they got to the picture of Reagan and John Paul II, and Nancy went, oh. she said, oh, my favorite, my favorite. And Joanne Drake said, what do you mean? She said, he was my favorite. John Paul II was my favorite. She said, you know, he was so much like Ronnie. Outdoorsman, athletic, had charm, gentleness, kindness. She said, and they were both actors, you know. Right? They were both, they were both actors. So they, they had this kinship. This kinship um, led to a collaboration. As Clark said, they both, ex ex they both understood the terrible oppression of atheistic communism. They believed that atheistic communism lived a lie, what Vaclav Havel called the communist culture of the lie. And, and they understood that when communism fully understood, must fail. And so, Reagan said this, of he, of he and John Paul II, this is Reagan's own words, we both felt that a great mistake had been made at Yalta and that something must be done. Yalta is where Poland and the other Eastern European countries basically fell behind the Iron Curtain, right? 1945. Solidarity in Poland was the very weapon for bringing this about. Reagan told the Pope in this June 1982 meeting, hope remains in Poland and we, working together, can keep it alive, can keep it alive. Now, maybe in the Q&A, I could go through exactly what they did, how they worked together. Um, among other things, a lot of intelligence sharing went on that we still don't know about. It's amazing how many of these documents are still classified, especially on the Vatican side, where they were classified for like 75 years. Uh, they, did, uh, they had their staffs meeting together constantly. There was one team, Bill Casey, the CIA director, who, as I said, was Catholic, Ambassador Vernon Walters, they would fly, Casey would fly in a, in a black, black jet without windows, a C-141. He would fly it to the Vatican. And we know that Casey and Walters met with John Paul II at least 15 times in the six years between 1981 and 87 when Casey was, 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 uh, was DCI, Director of Central Intelligence. Back in Washington, the key players were Bill Clark, Casey, and P.O. Loggi the uh, apostolic delegate to the, to the United States. They would meet constantly. Um, Clark says, Casey and I dropped into Loggi's residence early mornings during critical times to gather his comments and counsel. I'd speak to him frequently on the phone. He would be in touch with the Pope. Uh, on at least six different occasions, Loggi came to the White House, met personally with me and Reagan. Uh, Casey and Clark had this code, code language because they were always fearful that the phones were bugged. If, if something hot was happening in Poland where they thought they might need to talk to the Pope or talk to Loggi, Clark would pick up the phone and he would say to Casey, I think we need to get some cappuccino. And that meant they needed to meet with Cardinal Loggi. They would go over to his residence and they would meet. So uh, they worked together. The Berlin Wall falls in 1989. The rest is history, collapse of communism. Um, Berlin Wall fell in November 1989. 
But what everybody forgets is, is before the Berlin Wall fall and the breach in the Berlin Wall is what really led to the collapse of communism in, in, in Eastern Europe, or so everybody think, uh, thinks that, uh, Poland in June 1989 held free and fair elections. That was the single most important thing in the collapse of communism. Gorbachev said when Poland held elections in June of 1989, free and fair elections, Solidarity candidates won 99 out of 100 open seats. All right, and the one seat that they didn't win was won by a millionaire capitalist businessman from the West. I mean, the communists didn't, didn't win anything. Gorbachev said when, when that happened, when that election happened in Poland, I knew it was all over. I knew that was the end of it. What we didn't see, Reagan at that point in time was back in California. He left the presidency in January 1989, and he was called on, I was told this a few years ago, by a man named Chris Zawitkowski, who ran the Polish-American Foundation for Economic Research and Education. Um, Zawitkowski and another Polish-American and two Solidarity members paid a visit to Reagan at his office in California. This would have been the spring of 1989. And they're getting ready for elections in June of 89 in Poland. So they called on Reagan, who Poles consider a hero, a national hero. And they wanted to get some campaigning advice on him. And, and they asked him, they said, you're the old master campaigner, you won. By the way, imagine this. Reagan in 1980, imagine Mitt Romney pulled this off. Uh, Reagan won 44 out of 50 states in 1980 against an incumbent president. And Jimmy Carter was ahead of Reagan by about 10 points um, at this point. And it was narrow, it was neck and neck. And Reagan in 1984 won 49 out of 50 states. So, so these polls go to, go to Reagan, and they, they want some advice on campaigning, right? What exactly should we do going into the campaign? And they were taken aback when Reagan said this, here's my advice. Listen to your conscience, because that's where the Holy Spirit speaks to you. I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> didn't, didn't expect that. And then Reagan pointed over to a picture on the wall of John Paul II, and he said, he is my best friend. And he said, yes, you know, I'm Protestant, and he's Catholic, of course. He said, but, uh, but he's my best friend. So these two best friends work together in, uh, in taking down communism. All right, I've got a few slides here on the Cold War thing. Let's see if this works. Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay, here's some different pictures of them meeting together. Nancy Reagan. Um, the, the Pope came to the United States. Someone else in here would know this better than me. Um, six or seven times and uh, dating back to 1979, met with Reagan at, at a stopover in Alaska, met with him in Miami in 1987. Um, they also met together in 1982 at the Vatican, as I said, and also what hardly anyone knows about, they met at the Pope's private residence in September 1990, when the Cold War was over, just Ronald Reagan, Nancy, and, and the Pope. Uh, so just some pictures there. Here's some documents. I don't know how well these are gonna show. Eh, all right, but I can explain. Okay, these are just declassified recently from, the, from the, the Reagan Library. This is a White House cable to the Vatican. And as you can see, this is a get, well, as you can maybe see, this is uh, a little dot doesn't work. Uh, it's a get well message from the Pope to the President. A get well message from Reagan to the President after the shooting. of, um, And it says there in point two, uh, begin text, Your Holiness, Nancy and I were deeply touched by your kind expression of concern. Uh, we very much appreciate knowing you were thinking of us, that I have you in prayers for a speedy recovery. 
during my convalescence. This was just the kind of thing that they did. They, they wrote these notes to each other all the time. All right, that's the end of that, let's see. Here's another one. This is May 13th, 1981, our feast day of Our Lady of Fatima and the day that John Paul II was shot. And you see here, please deliver the following message from President Reagan to His Holiness Pope John Paul II. Your Holiness, I have just received the shocking news of the attack on you. All Americans join me in hopes and prayers for your speedy recovery from the injuries you have suffered in the attack. Our prayers are with you. All right, now here, this one's maybe a little more interesting. This is December 7th, 1981. This is one week before martial law was declared in Poland. And it says here, subject on the very bottom, uh, Pope's letter to president on disarmament. Uh, Foreign Minister uh, Silvestrini called me this morning and handed me a copy of the Pope's letter to the president dated November 25th. Has to deal with arms control. But the next page, uh, been sent to the Apostolic Delegates, uh, P.O. Laghi. Uh, so this is about arms control, the Soviet Union, Poland, that's what we can assume. Now you go to the very bottom, point six, begin text. To the Honorable Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America, and note what there is next. It's just blacked out. And the next page, redacted. The whole thing is still classified still redacted to this day. Why, 30 years later? There's hundreds of these like this. Probably some of the most interesting information. I'd love to know what this says. <laughs> Next page, there, end of text. Boy, I learned a lot from that, right? I mean, gee, the whole thing. I, I remember seeing this and, oh, I just got this declassified. All right, here we go, what does this say? Ugh. Oh, no, nothing. All right. Next document. This is after martial law was declared on December 13, 1981. And note this one. Presidential message to the Pope on the Polish situation. So you're familiar with John Paul II and his closest aide. You should deliver the following message from the President to Pope John Paul II through his secretary, Father Zivish, immediately. This is the Pope's closest confidant, right? Um, although Father Zivish may, may not be your normal channel for messages to the Pope, I must repeat, he must be the channel for this message. They trusted no one else but him to give us to John Paul II. There's a book out called Spies in the Vatican. Right? We, we were afraid of who might get this. Uh, your Holiness, I am following the fate of your countrymen in Poland with mounting concern. We this is after martial law. We must, I believe, explore every possibility which offers the slightest hope for bringing an end to the current crisis brought on by the Declaration of Martial Law. Uh, for more than 1,000 years, the Catholic Church has been inseparably linked to Polish nationalism. Today it speaks with greater authority. All right. Here's another document. This, I think, is, uh, is interesting. This is from, uh, I wonder if this man is still alive. Scott, you'll appreciate this. He's the, the president of the South Florida Baptist Association, and he's writing to President Reagan complaining about Reagan's work with the Vatican. Okay, our Protestant brothers and sisters did this frequently in the 1980s. Uh, Mr. Reagan, it is reported in the July-August issue of Church and State, 
Note, by the way, you've got a conservative Protestant now appealing to separation of church and state, right? Suddenly, suddenly he wants that, right? It's reported that the Reagan administration had spent at least $78,000 in public funds to fly a 48-person presidential delegation to Anchorage, Alaska to greet Pope John Paul II. The list includes your envoy to the Vatican, Cardinal John Crawl, Archbishop John Roach, and several priests and nuns. Mr. President, I protest this action. And I'm very anxious to receive from you the reason by which you justify this action. It is absolutely wrong to spend taxpayers' money to gain support for any religious groups. By the way, if this guy only knew, they're working together to take down the Soviets, to take down the evil empire. If the officials of the Roman Catholic Church want to meet, want to meet their pope, that would be their business. When the government underwrites this expense, it immediately violates the spirit of the First Amendment. I am a Southern Baptist minister and currently serving as a director of missions in an association of 46 churches. At this point, I am terribly upset and ready to get on my soapbox. I would appreciate hearing from you before taking this any further. I would like for you to verify that it happened, and, that I, and then I'd like to know how you justify it. There are hundreds of letters like this that Reagan got from these guys all over the country. Now here, this is from November 13, 1981. This is from the State Department, Country Officer for Vatican Affairs, and he's writing to this Dr. Bella Kapotsky from New York, New York. And Kapotsky wrote, and I have been asked to reply to your letter of October 12 to President Reagan regarding our relations with the Vatican. This person would like us to establish formal diplomatic relations with the Vatican, as Reagan wanted and as Reagan did. Note this. Uh, Next to the last paragraph, your position in favor of formal diplomatic relations, while thoughtfully expressed, is one that we continue to regard as problematic. Okay, Reagan is going against a lot of people in the State Department on this. A lot of people. And a lot of his own evangelicals. Courage, right? Be not afraid. He's going to do it anyway. This is just a simple little thing. This is March 18, 1983. Uh, Your Holiness, Reagan writing to the Pope, thank you very much for the handsomely, handsome copy of Annuario uh, Pontifico, which Archbishop Pio Laghi sent to me at the direction. They would send each other gifts. And the Pope had sent Reagan a gift, right? I wonder if Reagan read it. I, I, I don't know. Can't say for sure. This one, this is March 7th, 1983. Uh, it's from Archbishop Loggy. Please find and close the letter I have addressed to President Reagan transmitting a personal message from, from His Holiness, Pope John Paul II. Um, I don't know what exactly that's about, but it's March 7th, 1983, and the next day Reagan gave his evil empire speech, calling the Soviet Union an evil empire, for which he was viciously criticized, viciously criticized, called a maniac, practically. All right, those are some of the Cold War documents. I'm going to talk about the fighting for life. This won't take me uh, quite as long, and then I'll, I'll get to some of your questions. Uh, the abortion issue. This audience needs no information from John Paul II on that. You know where John Paul II stood on that. Uh, Ronald Reagan, extremely dedicated to this issue, said in 1983, quote, my administration is dedicated to the pre preservation of America as a free land, and get this, and there is no cause more important for preserving that freedom than affirming the transcendent right to life of all human beings. Get this, the right without which no other rights have any meaning. I mean, that's like 
right out of the Evangelium Vitae. Uh, Reagan used almost identical words to John Paul II, referring to the right to life as the first and most fundamental of all freedoms. Remarkably similar. For Reagan, uh, Reagan supported a, a human life amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Did you guys know about that? Right? Students, have you ever heard of that? A human life amendment to the Constitution, which would have inscribed in the Constitution these words. Now, Reagan's not Catholic, right? The paramount right to life is vested in each human being from the moment of fertilization without regard to age, health, or condition of dependency. Uh, Reagan favored providing every human being, defining every human being at all stages of development, beginning with fertilization, beginning with conception, as persons protected under the 14th Amendment and also under a human life amendment. Now, a lot of pro-lifers at the time said, well, you know, I'm pro-life too, but I don't, need to, I don't think we need to go that far. I don't think we need to rock this boat. You know, I, Ronald Reagan should back off on this. But you know, if Reagan would have succeeded in, a, in an amendment to the Constitution defining life beginning at conception, um, President Obama right now would be having a little bit more trouble trying to push through government funding of embryonic stem cell research and trying to push through an HHS mandate requiring everybody in this room right, to, to pay for contraception and abortion drugs if Reagan had, had succeeded in defining life in that way. This is written on Reagan's tombstone. I know in my heart that man is good, that what is right will eventually triumph, and that there is purpose and worth to each and every human life. John Paul II could have written that. Got other quotes from Reagan. January 1984 speech to religious broadcasters. God's most blessed gift to his family is the gift of life. He sent us the Prince of Peace as a babe in the manger. And then he said this, this nation fought a terrible war so the black Americans would be guaranteed their God-given rights. Abraham Lincoln recognized that we could not survive as a free land when some could decide whether others should be free or slaves. Well, today another question begs to be asked. How can we survive as a free nation when some decide that others are not fit to live and should be done away with? I believe no challenge is more important to the character of America than restoring the right to life of all human beings. Without that right, no other rights have meaning. And then he just said this without saying where the quote comes from. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Such is the kingdom of God. The New York Times went bonkers, actually wrote an editorial blasting this analogy. How dare you compare this to black Americans and slavery, right? The only real bondage is the bondage that Reagan is placing on women. That's what the New York Times said. Reagan felt so strongly about this, he took it to the State of the Union. 1986 State of the Union address, quote, today there is a wound on our national conscience. America will never be whole as long as the right to life granted by our creator is denied to the unborn. Now I should note here, and we could talk more about this in the Q&A, when Reagan was governor of California in 1967, he signed the Therapeutic Abortion Act into law, um, which effectively legalized abortion in California. Um, he thought that he couldn't stop it, and he thought that they could change the law, um, could make it better. There was a mental health provision. I wrote a piece for National Review Online. It's called Reagan's Darkest Hour, which lays all this out. Um, it was the ultimate and unintended consequences. There was a mental health provision in the bill that doctors and patients alike abused and used that to be able to have abortions in the state of California. 
and uh, Reagan said, we must never let this ever happen again. Edmund Morris, his biographer, said Reagan was left with an undefinable sense of guilt throughout the rest of his life about this. Uh, Lou Cannon, the other biographer, says the same thing. He told Bill Clark, who was his chief of staff, he said, Bill, we must never let this ever happen again. As president, Reagan actually published a book, wrote a book, Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. This is, wrote this as president. It has a foreword from Bill Clark, uh, that 1983, forgotten, often forgotten. Uh, here's an example on the life issue. This is a, a letter from 1987. President Reagan, presidents get a million letters from people, right? Millions of letters. All right, this one is hard to read. This is from a letter by a woman named Ruth Smith in Coeur Iowa, or Idaho. Okay, that's the handwritten letter. Now here it is, typed up. The White House transcribed it. You see the address on the bottom? All right, the White House, the White House transcribed it. Gave it to the president. Dear President Nancy Reagan, I just wanted to thank you for the stand you have taken on abortion. Federal funding of abortions is wrong, and the 1973 Supreme Court decision is a big mistake. 23 years ago in 1963 in Los Angeles, I was engaged and became pregnant. I asked the doctor if I had any alternatives like abortion, and he said no. So my fiance and I were married, and I didn't go back to college. Today, my daughter, Carrie, that I didn't abort but would have if I'd had an alternative, is beautiful. She's 22 and a senior in college. She traveled with the Continental Singers the summer of 85 in California. Um, she, her and her husband, they do money for the Ethiopians in the World Vision. She is a Christian and has the gift of evangelism, and she has shared the gospel of Christ with many, many people. Last summer, and note what's underlined here. I believe Reagan underlined this. Last summer, she married, and her husband, was, Ray, was just accepted in a study at Bethesda Medical School to be a surgeon. So she will be looking for college in your area to finish her last year of college. Do you have any recommendations? <laughs> right? And there, um, she included a picture of her daughter and her family. Eight years ago, when I was expecting my seventh child, I almost had an abortion because I was having problems carrying the baby, but decided against an abortion, even though it was legal. I knew it wouldn't be right, so today we have an eight-year-old son who is healthy and so much fun. And close their pictures, so hang in there, we are praying for you. Love, Ruth and Randy Smith. Now Reagan got that letter. This is right smack in the middle of Iran-Contra. Uh, this is between two summits with Gorbachev, with the Washington summit coming up. Um, Reykjavik had taken place a few months earlier. The media is calling for his head over Iran-Contra. He's got a million things to do. Reagan writes back. Dear Mrs. Smith, thank you for writing, as you did, and forgive me for being so late in my reply. Your letter has only just made its way to my desk. <laughs> That's okay, right? Uh, it takes a while before mail can make its way through the bureaucratic uh, byways. You asked if I had any suggestions. Uh, here, let me turn the. This is the type version. It's easier to read. By the way, get this. Reagan hand wrote every letter, and then the staff would type them up and they would send only the type version, and they would stamp it, Ronald Reagan. And I see now the originals in the Reagan Library, but I thought they should have sent him the handwritten letter, right? I mean, they're probably thinking sometimes, well, Reagan didn't actually write this. It sounds like he must have, but, uh, but anyway. Uh, you asked if I had any suggestions about a possible college for Carl. 
to finish getting, get, uh, Carrie to finish getting her degree. Since Ray will be studying Bethesda, I tried to see if there is a college close to that area. This is the president. This is the sitting president of the United States. There are three easily reachable by bus and subway close to downtown DC. <laughs> Georgetown University, Catholic University, George Washington University. Depending on where Carrie and Ray settle, they can also consider American University, my alma mater, uh, George Mason University, Virginia, University of Maryland, and numerous others. As you can see, Washington, D.C. is a great college town, and Carrie should have no trouble completing her degree. Again, thank you for your prayers and all best wishes. But uh, is, isn't that remarkable to see that, that, that he would take the time for that? Um, I found when the, Reagan wrote, we believe, uh, Kyron Skinner, the, the, the scholar at Carnegie Mellon and others have verified this. We believe that Reagan wrote more letters as president than any president since Thomas Jefferson. Um, he would write multiple letters per day. And the most interesting aren't the ones to Gorbachev and Andropov and Margaret Thatcher, but the ones to Ruth Smith of Coeur d'Alene, Iowa, Idaho. And I look at these, and they have all kinds of gems that just reveal what, what kind of a person Reagan was. I found this letter. I dug this out. When Ronald Reagan died in June 2004, I called Ruth Smith. And uh, she was still at the same address. I said why I was calling. I said what my name was. My book on God and Ronald Reagan had come out. They had it sitting on the desk in the house. And, and her husband, Randy, said, uh, oh, she'd love to hear this. Can I just keep talking to you? She's at the dentist. We kept talking. He said, here she comes. You go, Ruth, Ruth, come on in here. And she came in, and, and I told her, and she said, you have that letter? I said, I have it. I could, I could send you a copy of it. I could send you all of the originals. And, and I asked her, I said, whatever happened with this? She said, the daughter finished college. She took Reagan's advice. She went to the University of Maryland, specifically. Um, they gave the gift of life to seven children all of whom graduated from college. Two went to Princeton, two went to USC, one went to the Air Force Academy, one went to University of Wisconsin, one to Maryland, and all along she never worked outside of the college. They raised them in a little house. Um, how did they afford that, to send them all to college? She told me, quote, they all got good grades and financial aid. Randy and I are just now getting around to fixing the house after living here for 30 years. And uh, she said, said, do you mind if I use this and write it up? She said, no, please, it's for the cause, for the cause of life. All right, I got one last thing. This is a, a video of Reagan speaking to pro-life leaders in July 1987. Take heart in the words that you hear here. This has never been broadcast anywhere. This only exists because the White House videotaped all of these things. And uh, the people who were there have never seen this. And somebody tells me that one of the young folks sitting behind Reagan is Carl Anderson of the Knights of Columbus. Maybe you guys will know, you'll recognize him. And if so, I could get this to him, if any of you know him. I mean, he'd probably love to see it. Could you roll the video, please? We come here today on an issue of the most fundamental importance. Many of you have been attacked for being single-issue activists or single-issue voters. But I ask, what single issue could be of greater significance? What single issue could say more about a society's values and the degree of respect shown for human life at its most vulnerable, human life still unborn? Many, many of the most compelling arguments against abortion are as old as our civilization, indeed. 
I would submit that a reverence for all human life is one of the distinguishing marks of true civilization. In our own time, medical science has added to our knowledge of the processes of life that take place before birth, deepening our understanding of what abortion means to the mother and the unborn child. We know in particular that when an abortion is performed, the unborn child often face, feels pain. You might be interested to learn that when I first mentioned this in a 1983 speech, there was an outcry, enraged criticism, and angry denials. But criticism wasn't the only response. It so happens that I also received a letter signed by 24 medical doctors, including eminent physicians like the former chief of pediatrics at the St. Louis City Hospital and the president of the New York State Medical Society. The letter stated that in recent years, medical techniques have, quote, demonstrated the remarkable responsiveness of the human fetus to pain, touch, and sound. And the letter concluded, quote, Mr. President, in drawing attention to the capability of the human fetus to feel pain, you stand on firmly established ground. But in recent years, medical science has taught us so much more about the individuality and responsiveness of the fetus, even at the very early stages of development. My friends, isn't it about time the law of the land recognized the medical evidence of 1987? <laughs> if there's even a question about when human life begins, isn't it our duty to err on the side of life? The law of the land, that's a phrase with special resonance for Americans. After all, ours is not a nation founded upon centuries of shared history like the nations of Europe or Asia. No, ours is a nation founded upon a shared and basic law, the Constitution. And because it is the Constitution that must reflect our most fundamental values, freedom, equality before the law, and yes, the dignity of human life, because of this, the duty of everyone here today is clear. We must not rest, and I pledge to you that I will not rest, until a human life amendment becomes a part of our Constitution. Pause it right there. Uh, yeah, he would not rest until a human life amendment became part of the Constitution, but he never got it. And among the words in there, um, think about this. If there's even a question, I say this to my pro-choice friends all the time, if there's even a question about when human life begins, isn't it our duty to err on the side of life? Why not err on the side of life? And this phrase, this as well, as you're out there fighting this in the culture and dealing with secular folks who disagree with you on the abortion issue, many of you have been, and as Catholics, you hear this all the time, don't you? Many of you have been attacked for being single-issue activists or single-issue voters, he said. Uh, but I ask, what single issue could be of greater significance? And that's right. And we deal with that as Catholics and voting all the time. These other issues are all important. Social security reform, taxes, the economy, economic growth, everything. But, but what is more important than the right to life? Uh, without that right, all the other rights are impossible. Without that freedom, you can't have freedom of speech and freedom of press and freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. You, you, you can't. That comes first. There's one more clip, it's shorter, and it's quite poignant. 
If I could, I'd like to leave with you a quotation that means a great deal to me. These are the words of my friend, the late Terence Cardinal Cook of New York. The gift of life, God's special gift, is no less beautiful when it is accompanied by illness or weakness, hunger or poverty, mental or physical handicaps, loneliness or old age. Indeed, at these times, human life gains extra splendor as it requires our special care, concern, and reverence. It is in and through the weakest of human vessels that the Lord continues to reveal the power of his love. The weakest of human vessels. Surely there is no human life more frail and vulnerable than that of an infant still in its mother's womb. And surely it is our task to appeal to the goodness we know we can find in every American and to call upon the power of his love. I thank you all. God bless you all for what you're doing. Thank you for being here. His good friend, Terrence Cardinal Cook. Uh, Reagan showed up at Terrence Cardinal Cook's deathbed, and uh, Cardinal Cook said, Mr. President, right, you didn't have to come, right? And he said, no, I wanted to. I wanted to. And he said, you were there for me. Um, he was there for Reagan when Reagan was recovering from being shot. And it was Cardinal Cook who met with him Good Friday, 1981. But uh, the gift of life, God's special gift, is no less beautiful when accompanied by illness or weakness or mental handicap. It's then the life acquires an extra splendor, right? Um, the splendor of truth, the splendor of truth, the weakest of human vessels. All right, so what lessons can we draw from this uh, as Catholics, as, as Americans, as citizens? Well, it's, it's simple, it's short, it's not complicated. In, in fighting for human life, uh, as these guys did, whether it's against atheistic communism or whether it's against the death culture, whether it's against abortion, what we face today, um, be unafraid, be undeterred, uh, have courage. These guys faced tremendous mockery and ridicule. People called them names, called them idiots. They were vicious, the, the names, the anger that they faced, and yes, the evil that they faced. But uh, both of them, Reagan and John Paul II, they stood for truth. They stood against these things, and they succeeded wildly. And, uh, and you should, too. You should, too. So thank you, and God bless you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.